Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. If you're an ambitious woman who wants to advance in leadership, then this podcast is for you. This podcast is co-hosted by Nikki Barua, digital innovator, serial entrepreneur, author, and speaker, and Monica Marquez, senior corporate leader, ex-Googler, and diversity expert. From inspiring stories to cutting-edge strategies, you'll learn how to develop the skill set, mindset, and tool set to get future-ready fast and accelerate your success. Hi, I'm Monica, your host for today's episode. The phrase, reach for the stars, is said to come from a poem written by Virgil called the Aeneid. This Latin poem was written sometime between 29 and 19 BC. The simple meaning behind it was to set your goals in life high in order to achieve success. It's an inspiring quote. However, we often overlook the word stars and set our sights on one big north star. We then design a single path to reach that goal and forget to appreciate the collection of stars we acquire along the way that make up our very own beautiful constellation. Our guest today, Professor Sharon Goldfeld, is a pediatrician and public health physician at the Royal Children's Hospital Center for Community and Child Health and theme director for population health at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. She shares her career journey and how she visualizes each of her accomplishments as stars she collected along the way to her North Star, building an amazing constellation of stars that fueled her career success. She explains how she harnessed the burn or power from each star to help her achieve her North Star. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Sharon. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you so much for joining us on the Beyond Barriers podcast. We are thrilled to have you here. And I really want to be able to share your journey with our audience. And you've had a really interesting career and you have an, an amazing background. And so I want to dive right in and talk, tell us a little bit about who you are, um, what you do, and maybe one key lesson that you've learned through your journey um, in your career. Uh, I think the question about who you are and what you do is so interesting because of because what you do is not necessarily who you are. Yes, you know, you know and I, I think that's a really important thing that the the what you do doesn't define you, and <laughs> and I think that's a real challenge. But maybe that's for a later question. But so let me tell you a little bit about who I am professionally, and then if you like, we can talk about where I've come from, which I think is also a really yes. important part of the story. Mm-hmm. So um, so I'm a pediatrician. And I'm also a public health physician. So for us, that's two different specialist medical qualifications. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've worked for the um, almost my entire professional life um, at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, which is kind of really interesting place. So the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne has the hospital. Um, the university has its Department of Pediatrics on the same campus. Mm-hmm. And the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, which is a research institute, is also on the same campus. So most of us have feet in all three camps. Uh-huh. Um, and I've also worked particularly at a place called the Centre for Community Child Health, which I've just recently taken over the directorship of. Mm. And um, that's a really interesting place because even though we're a hospital, it's very outward looking. So it's looking at what happens to kids out in the community. Mm-hmm. So, And I can tell you a bit more, if you like, about my professional pathway, but that's kind of where... I see it at the moment. 
Fantastic. Yes, I would love to understand your journey and kind of like, you know, where you started and how did you gain that clarity of what it is that you wanted to do? Um, and, you know, what was, you know, what were the twists and turns that, you know, where you landed? So I've had a very unusual pathway. So, um, but I think it's an important one because it gives people a sense that there's no set pathway really. Um, but it is important to follow your passion. So um, a little bit about my background. So I'm just one generation away. So I'm first generation Australian. My parents are immigrants and they're um, immigrants from the Holocaust. So I'm kind of like one generation away from genocide, um, yes. anti-Semitism and exile. So my parents who were young at the time, sort of had to escape Poland, then came back to Poland and lived there for a while and then were chucked out of Poland essentially um, and eventually made their way to Australia. So I'm first-generation Australia and and I think that story has really driven quite a lot of my thinking, you know, the fact that, um, you know, a society like the society that was in Germany that could really just turn around and, um, sanction, I guess, in some ways, the annihilation of a people, um, and not, and not just the Jews. There were many people who were um, who were kind of exterminated. Really brought home to me the importance of being able to stand up and say something. And I think um, both subliminally, explicitly, that has absolutely driven my career aspirations right from the get go. Mm-hmm. And um, here in Melbourne. I went to a Jewish youth group that was very based on kind of social equity principles and I think that also drove me. So um, when I started doing medicine and I've always wanted to help people and I was particularly always interested in children, I really had no interest in anything else but paediatrics. So Uh, I pretty much would have been in trouble if if I hadn't gotten into (laughs) paediatrics. But, you know, I kind of realised pretty early on that even if I saw every child um, and did the best job I could with every child. And I still see children and I still think that end of one is really important. The touchstone into a single child's life and a single family's life to me is still important. Mm-hmm. But actually, if I wanted to make a difference for kids at a, at a whole level, I really, really felt that I needed to do something around the public health sort of aspects mm-hmm. of thinking about kids. And so this is unusual thinking for the standard paediatrician. Right. Um, most paediatricians take a clinical pathway and off they go. Um, but I was really committed to going, I think policy is a really important thing. Yes. I think um, that's kind of going to be a really important lever and I want to understand that more. So um, pretty early on I did a PhD in health services research Mm-hmm. So looking at, I was actually tracking a bunch of kids and their families, babies actually and their families, looking at where they went to, what health services they used, etc. And then I had this amazing opportunity. Um, I applied for something called the Harkness Fellowship. Mm-hmm. Now, the Harkness Fellowship in healthcare policy is actually um, undertaken by the Commonwealth Fund of New York. Mm. Um, the Commonwealth Fund of New York um, and the um, Harkness money is um, through the Harkins family, which I think was a gas family, mm-hmm. um, and most of their money has been transmitted into the uh, Commonwealth Fund. And they have an annual fellowship where they bring, um, if you're successful, people from Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the UK, I think even Sweden now, to the US to look at what are the learnings that the US can get from our perspective and what mm-hmm. perspectives could we learn by being in the US that we can take to our home countries. Right. And um, 
1998, I was fortunate enough to, to get a Harkness Fellowship. Mm-hmm. So this was pretty unusual. Here I am, a pediatrician, uh-huh. um, and going off to the US, which I went to in 1999. Mm-hmm. At that stage, I had two kids. And we all trotted off to Boston. Uh-huh. And um, so this was already pretty unusual. And we stayed in Boston for a year. And I worked at Boston University Medical Center. And those of you who know Boston, you know, yeah. um, kind of South Boston, it's a pretty poor area of Boston, although it's less a poor area. It's pretty gentrified these days. <laughs> right. um, and, and, and I spent a year working there with um, Barry Zuckerman, but I also spent a lot of time thinking about what are the kind of system changes we might want um, for children, got to meet some extraordinary people. It was the Clinton administration at the time. My claim to fame is I got to do the tour of the West Wing through the um, uh, with the Secret Service. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was just after the whole Monica Lewinsky thing, so it was all wow. pretty, <laughs> pretty amazing. Is that where uh-huh. it happened? Um, so that was pretty extraordinary. And then at the, at the, they also have this event, which is held at Blair House, on, um, as you know, which is on the actual grounds of the, um, uh, of the, um, oh my God, not Parliament House. Anyway, just had a blank on the work. Um, anyway, so that was kind of cool. They brought together all of the um, health ministers, and you go to Blair House and have this dinner, mm-hmm. and it and it's got you know the crockery and everything. So anyway, um, it was pretty exciting at that time to go and do that. To me, that was the same as doing the kind of tour. You know how you do the tour of LA and you go and see all the... (laughs) That was my version of that, um, being able to do that. So um, that was a fabulous kind of year and it really opened up my eyes to the importance of policy. Mm -hmm. And so I came back to Australia and applied to be the medical, um, the child health advisor in our government department Mm -hmm. of health. Um, and I was doing that part-time and still working at the children's part-time where I was trying to do research, clinical work, and sort of start this policy career because I just felt that if I was going to make a difference to policy, I really needed to understand it, that it wasn't enough to sit outside, that yes. I needed to move over, um, depending how you look at things, into the dark, onto the dark side mm-hmm. and really understand um, the proper policy environment. And, it, and I went to go for two years. I stayed for 10. Um, Yeah. And it's because um, I really felt that um, the role there was, it was, first of all, incredibly seductive environment. So if you're into adrenaline, go and work for government for a while. Um, (laughs) It's kind of like, it's it's policy bungee jumping. So, you know, um, Mm -hmm. particularly once you get up to the senior levels, you kind of, the minister wants something stat. And so you have to do something and get the policy brief up or, and you get this influence, you know, as I went up and up, I ended up spending the last three or four years in the Department of Education, believe it or not, as a paediatrician, as their principal medical advisor and sat on the most senior executive of the Department of Education, wow. um, which was really interesting and had sort of, you know, full view of what it takes to run an entire education department. And, but it was, you know, and so then you get access to ministers and all sorts of things. So it was incredibly seductive to be at these decision-making tables mm-hmm. where you can make decisions that influence the entire population of children in the state. Mm-hmm. So that made it really seductive. Um, mm-hmm. And it was an incredible learning experience for two things. Number one, great respect for policymakers in general. So we often poo-poo policymakers, but in fact, I have great respect for them. Um, and second of all, I kind of learned another language. So I consider it policy speak as a different language right. so I'm kind of I'm kind of fluent in policy speak um, and the third is you know it's very interesting when you've done that you kind of 
um, it's a bit like having the epaulet of um, you, you now have a kind of badge of honour. Right. And people really respect that. People inside know, oh, that's Sharon. She spent 10 years here. She gets it. Yes. And it, and it meant that my ability to influence from the outside and the relationships I built, because it's all about relationships, of course, um, really, really kind of went up. So after 10 years, I had to sort of had to have an intervention to leave. Uh-huh. Um, and I went back into um, research. At that stage, I realised if I didn't go back into research, I was never going to be a researcher because it turns out trying to do senior, two senior part-time jobs is not sustainable. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. That's And so then I went back into research. Yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop there. I can tell you about the research as well sometime. But that gives you a kind of sense of this kind of weird pathway that I've mm-hmm. taken. Most paediatricians do not take that pathway. No, absolutely. It's extraordinary and fascinating um, what you've done and, and absolute kudos to what you've what you've accomplished in your career. Um, and I'm interested in wanting to understand because you have a very pioneering spirit about yourself and, and you did, like you said, you t- kind of took this path not ever taken uh, for a regular pediatrician and really thinking about, you know, in those moments where you had that opportunity, did you ever have any any doubts, any any concerns, or anything that was almost holding you back just because it never been done before, or you know, really kind of how did you get past any of those limiting beliefs if you had them? Uh, how did you know what was that motivation that helped you keep moving forward into these unknown kind of like I'm going to do all of these things? So I guess everybody has doubts. <laughs> I'd be totally lying if I said, no, I had no doubt at all. Um, so so I've, um, I did have some doubts. I, I guess I have been um, my whole career completely driven by passion and mm. what I call the burn. And and I've sort of thought if I'm not doing what the burn is driving me to do, then I don't really want to do it. Mm-hmm. To, to the point, to be honest, when I am um, in Australia, you have to sit these exams to become a paediatrician and they're in the mm. middle of your training. So it's not like you... They're kind of entry exams, essentially. So you uh-huh. kind of do half your training and then you do these exams and they're the entrance into the rest of your training. And if you don't get through those exams, you can't progress. Mm-hmm. Um, I already had a child already when I was doing my exams. So I took mm-hmm. quite early. And um, at that stage, it was a huge big deal to spend all those hours studying for the exam and all right. the rest of it. And I sort of said, if I don't get through those exams to get into pediatrics and sort of pursue that career, that I would actually change careers. I would leave medicine mm-hmm. altogether and just do something different because I couldn't see a life for myself that didn't. Like I wasn't interested in just being a doctor for doctor's sake. I only wanted to be a doctor that could look after children and cared about children. Right. So, so that burn has been really powerful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but also, I think. I've sort of had a belief that it would just be okay mm-hmm. and and I think that comes from a number of things. First of all, um, so I've got a very supportive partner and I don't I can't underestimate that in terms of mm-hmm. you know do what you want really and I'll support <laughs> you. Um, that makes a big difference I think if someone's got your back uh, to yes. be able to experiment and just go, okay, do what you want. Um, second of all, I think, um, as I said, with the burn, I couldn't see myself just being a clinician all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Like if you know how you look forward to your life and you go, what that's going to look like, mm-hmm. I just thought that 
that that I couldn't do that. I could already see that that would just um, break me. So there's, there's, there's no way I can do that. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is, um, you, you, everything um, in your career, I think, is kind of mutually beneficial. So if the if you're kind of continually stimulated, mm-hmm. it's kind of like you know the like the mouse going back for the sugar water. You keep yeah. going back to it. And you're going, wow, oh, that was really great. And, oh, wow, that was really great. It's unfortunately meant that a lot of things are really great and I've been spectacularly unsuccessful in doing all those very concentrated things that you're meant to do. <laughs> um, you know, as a researcher, you're meant to do later this, this, and I've sort of been like, but this is interesting and this is interesting and this is interesting. Uh-huh. Um, but I think um, that ability to, to sort of um, go into your gut Mm-hmm. And just go. This is kind of what makes me happy. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's kind of given me the security to just at least give things a go. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, when I first went into government, I thought I was going to die in there because it's incredibly bureaucratic and risk averse. <laughs> and uh-huh. people are saying, "I'm sorry, this brief doesn't have enough full stops in it." And you're kind of going, "This is not the big picture." <laughs> um, right. I want to kill you, but. Um, but you sort of then learn, you know, you learn things. You learn how to be wily. You learn how to get around it. Like to mm-hmm. me, it's like how this is a challenge, like a maze. Okay, who do I need to speak to? How do I do that? How do I do that without treading on that person's toes? Mm-hmm. But still, you know, so to me, it was just this ongoing stimulation of the challenge mm-hmm. and kind of come what may. I, I, can, I can say to you one thing, though, that I think is a bit of an unfair advantage and that is having a medical career mm-hmm. gives you the ability to take risks mm. because worst case scenario, I go back to being a paediatrician somewhere. Uh-huh. I can earn a living. Um, I can be employed. I can employ myself. I can make money. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and I think that ability to fall back on something, mm-hmm. if it all just falls apart, I think that gave me the um, courage Mm-hmm. And the conviction to just go, well, let's just try something different and see what happens. Because worst case scenario, I'll just go back to being um, a paediatrician. And and then I got this second qualification because I was working in public health and I thought, mm-hmm. I think I should get my qualification. I'm also pretty type A. Oh, look, it's there. I should do it. Yes. Um, and so that's sort of to my own detriment. Um, and, and so I did that as well. So I had these two qualifications that sort of said, well, if it all just falls apart, mm-hmm. I'll go back to being, you know, a standard doctor. And um, and I do think both having a supportive partner and a fallback career means mm-hmm. you can take some pretty unusual decisions. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, it, it really does align with the whole kind of, you know, you you had your fallback, which was, you know, being the pediatrician. But, you know, it was like, what is the upside? What is the downside? Can I live with the downside? And your downside was, well, I could go employ myself or go get a job doing this and, and that. Um, but I also think the important thing you mentioned is having a supportive partner, supportive, you know, spouse. Um, and you mentioned that, you already had children when you decided to do some of these other, um, uh, pursue these other career opportunities. Can you share a little bit about that, that whole work-life, you know, integration, because there's no such thing as balance. And, and oh, no. I can certainly, can certainly tell by your career that, you know, there had to be some sort of boundaries and kind of setting expectations. How did you go about handling that so that you could pursue your passions and, and do what you were doing? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And, and I'm so glad you said there's no such thing as work-life balance. And and when I um, speak to younger women, um, you know, I say don't believe them when they say you can have it all because mm-hmm. actually you can't, nobody can have it all, neither women nor men. This is not a gendered thing. Right. Nobody can have it all. So you have to prioritise what you really want to have. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're having children and having a career, you will be spending less time with your children. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and you have to work out how you want to, and neither, whatever you decide will not be right or wrong, but you just can't have it all. That's right. just the reality. Um, so it's, it's, it was really interesting for me. As I said, having a supportive partner made a difference. Mm-hmm. We had, um, I had parents that could help and we had good daycare here and all of those sorts of things that made that happen. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I kind of chose bits of my career that I could do without them being full on. So mm-hmm. um, I did a PhD, so that's kind of not quite so full on. I did some fellowships that are just not quite so full on. They're pretty mm-hmm. full on, but mm-hmm. not quite so full on. So it just gave me enough flexibility that I could be, you know, home in the evenings. I didn't have a lot of stuff to do. You know, I wasn't on call and those sorts of things that are really right. much harder. Right. And that sort of allowed me to have some of that balance. It, it mm-hmm. all, I'm not um, um, good at working at night. I've worked, you know, I work at, in the evenings and do all those things you're not meant to do. But it sort of meant that, you know, I had the early evening clear to spend time with the kids, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And so it gave me that opportunity to sort of be with them when I was with them and then I wasn't with them. Mm-hmm. And, and I've got two daughters myself, so it's been really interesting to even have them reflect. They're both, <laughs> you both, it won't surprise me, they're both you know, obviously going for a career sort of women. Mm-hmm. Um, and But it's really interesting. So the older one never saw me as an absent mother. Mm-hmm. And, but the younger one, I think when she was about six, I mean, I was not even younger, um, maybe she was about five or six years old and she was in the bath once, she turned to me and said, why can't you be a real mother? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I said, oh, what does a real mother do? And she goes, oh, a real mother picks their children up first school every day mm. and so I don't know where she got the sewing thing from uh-huh. so, um, anyway that was just kick the knife in and twist it around again so she, she right. still in, interestingly really says I was never around but from her point of view as a career woman is a really strong feminist and believe uh-huh. you know believable so like she's got this kind of really cognitive dissonance I think mm-hmm. but but you know they're you know I don't look at them and go oh I you know Part of you will always go, oh, God, I wish I'd spend a little bit more time with them, et cetera. I did take mm-hmm. time off when they were um, babies. Mm-hmm. But on the, other hand, on the other hand, you know, I think it's okay. Like, I, you know, mm-hmm. I think I'll always be ridden with some sort of guilt about yes. various things, uh, partly because I'm a woman, partly because I'm Jewish. Um, <laughs> um, so I think that's always going to be there. But, but I do think um, – in the end, I just had to be who I was going to be. And if yes. I didn't have a career, I wasn't going to be a good mother either. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. just sort of think that's – and also, you know, um, I think things are much better now, but also why would I, why was I going to have to sacrifice my career if my partner wasn't going to sacrifice right. his career? And um, I just sort of thought, well, you know, life will go on. Um, right. and, and that's what we did. But I, but I say that because it's not trivial to make those sort of decisions. Mm-hmm. I also say that because I see very many fine women who decide to make other decisions in the short term at least to spend more time with their kids, et cetera. So right. I, think, I think any decision is fine. Um, mm-hmm. I'm hoping those decisions are made for the, reasons, for the right reasons in that I want to make that decision yes. as opposed to I have no choice. 
And I love that. I love that level of authenticity that you, like you said, there's no right or wrong answer, but you have to stay true to yourself. And had you kind of, if you kind of like submitted to the societal kind of uh, demands and said, okay, I'm going to be a stay at home mom. I think, like you said, you wouldn't have been a good mother because you would have always been kind of in this regret of, I want to do these other things um, and vice versa. You've pursued your career, but you've still been a mother. You've still been there supporting. But I think it's having those, even those conversations when your daughter says, why can't you be a real mother? (laughs) And having that conversation of like, I am a real mother, but I'm, you know, but this is what my mothering looks like. So, um, like you said, I think those are interesting conversations, but that's what it is, is that communication with, um, with your family and those around you. I think it's fantastic in terms of, staying true to yourself and doing what is, you know, following your passion, because if you aren't doing that, then you're not going to be, you know, you are not going to be able to give, you know, to, to others if you aren't kind of fully fulfilled with yourself. So, um, I I love that. And I appreciate you being completely authentic and saying, I pursued this because this is what I wanted to do. Um, and, you know, and you made it work. Like you said, we can't have it all. Um, certainly not at the same time. And there were ebbs and flows and you did make certain, um, you know, choices in terms of, like you said, being able to take, you know, pursue parts of your career that allowed you for a little bit more time and things like that. So I, I love that. I love how you shared that so that our listeners can hear, you know, that it's ebbs and flows. And um, but you have to know what your North Star is and stay on course with that North Star. I think that's fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Sh- oh, I think the North, the North Star, I was going to say, um, the, maybe it's the stars on the way to the North Star. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think, you know, things change as well. Like if, mm-hmm. if you'd asked me in med school, was I going to do a Harkness fellowship? Well, I don't know. I didn't even know what that was, you know, that I was going to do that. Right. Um, if you'd said to me, I was going to stay, you know, in government for 10 years, you know, that, you know, so, and, and the other, so I think, you know, the North North star is kind of like, I'm going to make a difference for kids, but I mean, there's a whole lot of stars that kind of right. take you in different ways on, on the way. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing I just wanted to say, cause I think this is really, um, has been a lesson for me anyway, is this kind of um, what I would call mutual benefit of everything I've been doing. So the things I do stimulate me more to do other things. Mm. So it's kind of like um, it gives me more energy and more bandwidth. So it's it's kind of this weird, the more I do, the more bandwidth I have, yeah. rather the more I do, the less bandwidth I have, mm-hmm. um, except for COVID that has probably killed my bandwidth. But um <laughs> Finally, I think I might have got to the edge of it. But I've always found the more I do, and this is just me and everybody's different, mm-hmm. but I've found that stimulation of more gives mm-hmm. me more energy mm-hmm. um, to do other things. Now, every, I think everybody's different around that, so I'm not suggesting everyone's like that. But it's been really interesting for me mm-hmm. that the, um, I guess, stoking the passion fire mm-hmm. um, actually makes the passion fire burn burn more. Yes. And that absolutely resonates with me because I feel like the more I have on my plate, 
uh, the, the, almost the more effective that I am in doing all of the other things. And when I have too much time on my hands, I either procrastinate or I just, you know, I, I just go a little crazy. Um, and so the more that I have, it's almost kind of like it forces you, um, to be a little bit more, you know, disciplined and methodical in what you're doing and prioritizing. So speaking of that, what would you say is kind of like your, habits, your success habits and getting all of these things done um, in terms of, you know, just being able to execute what helps you do all that you do. Um, like you said, even because you aren't like streamlined, laser focused on one thing, you're doing all of these different things that are aligned. So um, the, the bottom line is people, other people. And mm. um, so I, I kind of learned pretty early on that, um, and I'm still not as good as it as I would like, is the importance of having great teams mm. is just completely vital for two reasons. First of all, having a great team means you can get to do things mm-hmm. um, because the team is really taking care of it. So having great people, but mm-hmm. also it also means I feel we're building the next generation mm-hmm. and and creating that burn in more people. You know, I you know right. have this real. My north star is addressing inequity for kids. That's my absolute north star, and um, that's the north star. I now have the opportunity to drive through the centre that I'm directing, um, but but actually I want that north star for the people who work in that centre. I want them to have that sense, um, that same burn, and so. Um, our world's a bit weird because, you know, in research you have to go out and get money and then do these projects and mm-hmm. hope for the best. And so, um, you know, I'm pretty good at getting money. And so, uh, you know, so my job is to kind of get the money and then create the projects that can create the momentum. But, mm-hmm. you know, if I was going to actually manage every single project, I would fall over. But having great people who can do that means mm. I can go off and pursue policy aspirations or advocacy aspirations and, um you know, be out in the media about COVID and kids because that was a really important thing to do. And mm-hmm. and I could only do that because I have fabulous teams and fabulous people that I work with that will step up um, and and um, that, that I hope that I have empowered to step up and own. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, you know, I'm not a micromanager or any of those sort of things because, I, you know, that's what you want other people's burn to do exactly the same for them. And so right. I, I think... I mean, there's all those things like, you know, how do you do your emails and everything, but that's really boring crap. Right. You know, and I'm not, I haven't worked out the magic for this. I've tried the delegate, delete thing. I've tried the out box. I've tried the action box. I've tried the tagging thing. <laughs> I pro- just have not nailed the um, email tsunami that um, is my inbox every day. Right. Um, so if anyone out there has nailed it, let me know. Um, I've tried it, <laughs> tried everything. And I think just my head is not the right sort of head for um, emails. Um, and, you know, I'm just in meetings every day, which is part of the, <laughs> of the problem. But that's right. about relationships, right? That's your team. That's your relationship. That's, you know, helping build them. So, yes. um, I, you know, to me, there's the two things, the team and the relationship. That's the, I think that's the, the secret. And and as I said, that kind of, um, you know, that kind of burn, build, burn sort of thing right. in terms of 
um, a bandwidth. Yeah, the intrinsic motivation to keep going. I think what you've said is actually really, really important because, you know, in all of the work we do with the women and the various different organizations and helping women kind of accelerate their success, one of the areas that we, you know, where we measure women and talk to them about their community and the relationships and how they leverage their relationships, we find that women don't do a really good job of leveraging their relationships in a professional capacity. And a little earlier in the conversation, you mentioned how when you got into the policy making or the policy portion of it, and you were saying, well, you know, um, you know, you were learning and you were like, well, who knows how to do this? Or I've got to tap this one, how to get it done and this and that. Um, how did you, you know, share a little bit about that of how, you know, just relationships or even access to influential individuals that showed you how to do it even when you didn't know how did you how did you go about doing that yeah i mean i think relationship building is probably the most important skill any of us can have mm-hmm. if we're aiming to have some level of influence and not everybody wants to do that and that's perfectly um reasonable but if the if the if the if part of the north star is some sort of change process then it's got to involve other people because there's no Mm. way you can do it alone ever. Um, And it's got to involve relationships because it involves people. (laughs) And Mm. um, fundamentally, we're social creatures. And so to me, um, that was a a combination of, I think I'm probably kind of just naturally quite good at that sort of stuff, Mm -hmm. but, but also being quite purposeful. So it wasn't just real, it was I'm sort of ruthlessly strategic in, um, in, 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 in working out who do I need to talk to mm-hmm. um, that's going to make a difference to what I need to get done that I think is going to make a difference for kids. Right. And that includes everything from who do I know that knows that person. I hate cold calling. I'll almost never do it. Mm. Um, I'll always try and work out who – I must know someone who knows that person that can introduce me in some mm-hmm. way. Um I'm, I don't ever think that I'm ever going to be important enough that just, ooh, Sharon Goldfeld has called. I must take <laughs> that call. Um, right. uh, you know, I always kind of rely on somebody else being the um, introducer to that mm-hmm. and can vouch for me in some sort mm-hmm. of way. And that sort of, to me, accelerates what, where you need to get to. Um, so I've always found that somebody who can, who, somewhere that can, you know, there's usually a dot joining somewhere. You know, we're never that far, in, especially in the areas that I work in, like no one's ever that far removed from it, even in the political sphere. And so that, that's the first thing is kind of being really ruthlessly strategic about who do I want to know and who's going to help me know that person and why do I want to know them mm-hmm. and what sort of relationship do I want to know them and why is that going to get us to the next um, level? So I think that and that's some of the stuff I learned in government because I didn't have a lot of power in government. Mm-hmm. You, know, I, you know, I didn't have a big budget. I was an advisor. Advisors are great positions because you have all care and no responsibility, but you have to be really wily about influence because you don't have a, you know, billion-dollar budget because billion-dollar budget gives you lots of power, right? Mm-hmm. Um, having no budget because gives you no power, but mm-hmm. I did learn the art of influence. Mm-hmm. Um now, now being a doctor, to be honest, really helped for all the, you know, hierarchically wrong reasons. But anyway, it did help. Um, and so that helped me be able to talk to people that were above my standing in government, mm-hmm. even though theoretically weren't supposed to. And how do you do that? And how do you get to know that person and have a coffee with that person mm-hmm. or whatever? And 
and build on those relationships so that when you need to, you can actually put things up through them. That's going to make a difference. And I think um, I talk about, I've got a book, uh, a chapter in a book, but I talk about this using um, Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point analogy mm-hmm. yes. and this idea of how do you get other people to take up your idea? So one is you've got to have a good idea that's a kind of a sticky message he talks about. But the other is other people take up your ideas mm-hmm. and you and you have to give up that IP. So that's the other thing I learned was, um, you know, I've got as much ego as anybody else. I would like occasionally somebody to tell me I'm doing a good job <laughs> um, and that something's making a difference. But it, it can't all be attributed to me. Mm-hmm. I have to give a lot of that away. So that other people go, yeah, that's a great idea. And they, yeah, that's a great idea. And and so I learned then you give that away. That's the kind of tipping point stuff, which is you only ever get to that tipping point if other people think um, it's all a good idea. So you kind of, right. as, as, along with your ego, you have to have some humility and a sense that I'm going to have to give this away to make a difference mm-hmm. and that's going to be okay, which is really interesting in research where everything is about not giving things away. <laughs> frustrated me enormously in research that everyone talks collaboration, but, oh, by the way, you have to own this paper and you have to be the number one author on it because otherwise nobody's going to take you seriously. Right. There's a whole conversation to have about the research world. Um, And that's where I think a lot of women trip up in being able to stand up and go, no, I have to be an author there or um, Mm. what what have I done here, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, that gives you, I, I think that sort of, um, and I think women generally are fantastic. This is a gross generalisation, but in general, women's abilities do sit in that AI space and yes. um, and that softer skills. And and actually, that's the way to get stuff done. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and, it's a superpower. And, yeah, it's absolute superpower. Mm-hmm. And and when you can harness that together with, as I said, Ruth being ruthlessly strategic about you know, your relationships and joining dots, then mm-hmm. then I think you can actually get an enormous amount done and have a good time and still be, you know, a pretty decent person. I mean, at the end of it, you don't want to be a horrible person. You kind of still yes. want to stay true to your own values. Fantastic. That's so insightful. What if you could pinpoint the invisible ceilings limiting your success? Imagine having clarity on your strengths and barriers so you can take action and gain unstoppable momentum to advance as a future-ready leader. Well, that's exactly what the Beyond Barriers quiz will help you discover. You'll get your personalized score based on the 25 essential elements proven to accelerate success in the digital age, so you can understand what's holding you back and where to focus your efforts. The Beyond Barriers quiz is completely free and takes just a few minutes. Go to imbeyondbarriers.com slash quiz and take the quiz today. Shifting gears, you talked a little bit about, uh, you know, I want to talk about how you pivot and how you remain agile, Um, because, you know, with policy, there's always things changing, um, you know, in healthcare and things like that. And then something, you know, some worldwide pandemic like COVID hits. How did you, you know, how did you stay ahead or how did you make sure that you didn't get left behind, like, you know, just, you know, fall back on your heels and, and get caught up in all of this. How do you remain agile and how did you pivot and make sure that you were able to shift you, your teams in the work that you were doing? 
it's a really good question because it was such a stressful time when this first all came. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of, and, of course, there was a whole initial response, which was just to keep your team safe. We, um, because we were on a hospital site, we had to get off pretty quickly. So we had to move right. 2,000 people off site very quickly. Nobody knew what was going to happen and it was very sort of difficult time. So, of course, that was just about taking care of everybody and making sure everybody was okay. But very quickly we realised if, if we didn't do something about kids, kids were just not going to be part of the agenda at all. Mm. And, and what was great was, you know, I, we brought people together and they just had great ideas. And one of the great ideas, for example, was we already follow a whole lot of different cohorts of kids. And we said, what about if we just go out to those cohorts and start asking them what it's like during the pandemic so we would have data on the real-life experience of the kids. I went, great. And, and one of my superpowers is getting money. And um, <laughs> so I said, great, let's get some money for that. And so we started doing that. We also, this is also one of the other moments, is we thought, well, what's the opportunity we have across the whole campus to bring all our research together? So um, I started co-chairing a governance committee with the with the infectious disease specialist. Mm-hmm. And so me, the public health specialist and the infectious disease specialist, we got together and started saying, who do we need to get around the table so that we're talking to each other about what research should we be doing? What is everybody doing? And starting to think about, is this the moment to position our institute? And what are the opportunities here as well mm-hmm. as everything else? And so we started doing that. And then we've been thinking about, and then we've sort of been advocates, we've been in the media and, you know, it's really just being able to put yourself out there um, and think about what are the opportunities here so that, you know, our anxiety from very early on, mm-hmm. I remember the first grand rounds I gave back in April 2020. That's mm-hmm. the other great thing is you can do all these Zoom grand rounds now, 600 people come. Right. Um, and, and it was what will the long tail of COVID be like for kids? Not long COVID, we can have a whole debate about that, but the long tail of COVID. And if right. we're not thinking about that now, if we're not, planning for that now children are going to get left behind and I was mm. very anxious and I remain anxious about inequalities for kids and and so if you're not thinking about that we to your point we would have been left way behind both from a research point of view and an advocacy point of view um and uh you know your, your bandwidth just kept expanding expanding yes um to try and do that and I guess um, some of the things was, you know, I could rely on fabulous people to keep managing those projects. And um, I will say that taking over a new centre, I became a director of population health, which is one of our big themes in the Murdoch, uh-huh. and took over this new directorship and maybe for another conversation, but I took it over from someone who'd been there for um gosh, 26, 27 years, who was a man actually, Mm -hmm. who's been a fabulous mentor, but it's really interesting as a woman to take over um, from a man who's actually started this centre up. So that was really challenging, actually. It's probably Mm -hmm. the most challenge I've been in my whole career. Um, But I took that over and the theme director is late 2019. Wow. So note to self, try not to do that during a pandemic. (laughs) Um, So that was just incredibly stressful and and difficult and, and probably took me a bit longer to to start to be the director I really would like to be and still difficult because no one's on no one's actually there. Right. So lots of challenge lots of challenges in that. So there are some things I think we did really well. There are some things that I just haven't been able to do well or give it the time and energy it probably needs. Mm-hmm. Because in the end you do get to the end of your bandwidth. Yes. And you have to have to prioritize. And COVID and getting kids on the agenda was a priority. The center would always be there. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is certainly was certainly a handful, and I'm uh, and I think you probably navigated it well. In hindsight, saying that you, could, you know, you're like you know, but you did the best that you could. 
share with me though, like you said, you get to the point where you may be close to suffering burnout. What have you done to kind of step back and do a little bit of self-care so that you could re-energize yourself so that you could keep doing the fabulous work you're doing? So there's a few things I run and um, that has been incredibly important for my mental health. So even during our lockdowns and everything, I've just kept running and I do Pilates as well. So whether it's online or face-to-face mm-hmm. and I think the um, physical exercise for me has mm-hmm. been an absolute game changer for maintaining my mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a lot of white noise thinking. I listen to podcasts mm-hmm. um, and it's, I think through things, and for me, the running has been is more mental health and physical. I'm not a very fast runner. I'm not going to break any land speed records. I'm not <laughs> doing marathons. Uh-huh. I came to running quite late in life, so I toddle along. Um, but to me, that that has been the ability for me to have the bandwidth is related mm-hmm. to that. The other thing I do quite well is micro breaks. So I take mm-hmm. a weekend off, take a couple of days off, and, and I don't look at emails. So um, my view is I have to totally dissociate to actually turn off. Mm-hmm. And so um, I try, and I have great people who are managing diaries and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be honest, at the end of now two years of all of this, I just took a week off and um, it wasn't kind of enough. So I realised I think there's enough self-reflection. We're getting to the end of our calendar year, which we're, we're pretty tired mostly. We're heading mm-hmm. into our summer, which is our big break. And I've realised I'm probably not, um, functioning quite as well as I could be. So I'm looking forward to a longer break, right. recharge. Um, so I do think you have to, to self-care. But but like you, if I take too much time off, I start getting bored. <laughs> yes. That, that, that's <laughs> What's the, doing? <laughs> yeah, keep yourself busy. Absolutely. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. And I know that our audience, you know, um, will be very excited to hear your story. What are some parting words that you would like to leave with the audience in terms of just uh, words of wisdom, anything you want to share before we wrap up? Um, I mean, my main words of, I don't know if it's wisdom, but words anyway, um, are um, really the the risk-taking is so important. Mm-hmm. And um, in my view, no matter what, if, if, if you're good at what you do, something else will happen. I, I, I still do worry for a lot of women that they're worried that imposter syndrome is, is in men and women. Yes. But I think I see it in women, I see it in my own daughters, you know, you can still get this, oh, man, am I really good at this? And I, look, I still have it as well. So, you know, I don't think it goes away just because you get older. I just think you care less uh, <laughs> as you get older. But but I don't think it ever goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, am I doing a good job? Um so that, that's the first thing. The, the second thing is, and I don't think I've done this as well as I'd like to, is um, gratitude um, and, and thanking others. So I think because I spent most of my career being quite driven, mm-hmm. um, I, I think um, sometimes I don't stop and thank people enough. Mm. And, I, you know, I do think having that great team is really important, but thanking that great team mm-hmm. is is just as important um and and as i said when one is driven one needs to be careful one doesn't leave everybody else um behind Mm, so that's the second thing and and the third thing is is that um you know go with go with your passion yes Um, 
I, I don't see very many people not succeed when they've gone with their passion, um, when they've compromised or they're doing things just because people think they because they think they ought to. I, I see people quite unhappy or un, maybe mm-hmm. not unhappy but unsatisfied. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I think if you can keep um, your passion alive mm-hmm. and feed the fire, continually feed the fire, whatever you're doing, this might be in voluntary roles as well, not just in your work, in your life, um, that, that, you know, somehow that means you get up every day going, okay, I, I can do today. It's going to yes. be okay. That is fantastic and so insightful. And I love your three, you know, takeaways in terms of making sure that, you know, you don't let self-doubt and that imposter syndrome stop you from pursuing your passion. Um, and because if you're pursuing your passion, you're going to be successful. And of course, gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. Um, I think those are amazing, uh, you know, tips to live by. And I so appreciate you taking the time to speak to us here at Beyond Barriers and I know that our audience are going to love uh, hearing your story. Uh, That said, I'm pretty sure that many will reach out as we always get after (laughs) a great guest is how do we stay in contact? How do we follow you? Is there a LinkedIn where you have your Sharonisms that you share with um, people? Uh, You know, how what's the best way for people to follow you? Um, so I am on Twitter. Uh-huh. Um, so I do quite a bit on Twitter. So it's Sharon underscore Goldfeld. I am on LinkedIn. Uh-huh. Um, so they're the two social media platforms. My email is pretty much everywhere over the entire um, internet. So uh-huh. and I'm always happy to um, have a message from someone. I'm pretty good at responding to emails eventually. Um, <laughs> and so I'd be delighted if people wanted to um, reach out just to have a chat. But yeah, I am on both LinkedIn and Twitter. Great. Well, it has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much, Sharon. And I hope to stay connected and um, partner in the future with Beyond Barriers. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute honor. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Barriers podcast. There are thousands of podcasts out there, and we are so grateful that you've chosen to listen to ours. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and tell a friend about it and subscribe to get new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com where you'll find show notes, links, and the best way to connect with our guests. See you next episode.